0: Hello to all tuning into the Aerospace Ambition podcast. I'm Marius, here with Kieran, my fellow co-host. As aerospace engineers, we are at the intersection of sustainable aviation and artificial intelligence. In today's episode, we are focusing on the critical issue of contrary prevention and management. Let's find out who we have the pleasure of speaking with today. Kieran.
1: So today we're joined by Professor Stephen Barrett. He's the H.N. Slater Professor of Aeronautics and Astronautics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT, where he is head of the Aeronautics and Astronautics Department and director of the MIT Laboratory for Aviation and the Environment. His research focuses on helping the aviation industry achieve zero environmental impacts with focus areas including low emissions propulsion, contrail avoidance, and evaluating the sustainability of biofuels Stephen, thanks for joining us on the show.
2: Thanks so much, it's great to join you.
1: Yeah, so as we've spoken about in previous episodes, there's, of course, a multitude of different environmental impacts caused by aircraft emissions, namely CO2, but also the non-CO2 effects, um, including contrails, NOx, and aerosols. Um, And in talks you've given in the past, you've presented these effects in terms of their economic impacts so not just climate effects but also the the local air quality effects and what they um the impact they have in terms of dollars per ton of fuel so could you please elaborate on on these different effects from this context
2: yeah so so um at a high level there are many impacts of different of emissions and um those include air pollution, and that's the effect on human health, um, but also climate change, which you could view in many ways, such as um, average temperature increase, or changes in sea level, or even changes in crop productivity or, or disease vectors. Um, so it gets it's very complicated to compare all these different kinds of environmental impacts of emissions. So in some contexts, it can be useful to come up with a single metric that enables you to compare um different emissions and the total environmental damage caused by those emissions and the reason is is that that way you can sort of prioritize where to put investments where you can see you can get the quickest benefit from a different investment so having a a single number helps you to do that prioritization
1: as so for what's the highest in terms of cost down to the lowest
2: so there's um there's a bit of uncertainty in the exact rank order so i can give you sort of the the leading contenders and then the lower ones so um the, the sort of first-order impacts come from NOx, CO2, and contrails, and they have different impacts. So in the case of CO2, everyone will be familiar that that's primarily of concern for climate, in its it, uh, increased global temperatures. And um, those numbers in those talks you referred to uh, come from um, the literature of environmental economics, which associates increases in global temperature with economic damage. And there's a established sort of scientific basis for, for coming up with those estimates but those estimates are still still uncertainty associated with them secondly um what's really unique about aviation is that the emissions are at high altitude and so um when you emit water vapor at high altitude it often can be cold and wet in the atmosphere and that water can freeze into an ice cloud basically contrail condensation trail and those are thoughts cause about as much warming as all of the CO2 from aviations. So that's kind of the other big climate effect is, is contrails. And then the, th- the third biggest um, impact environmentally is the NOx emissions from aviations. So that's um, oxides and nitrogen. And that comes about because you know, we burn fuel in the atmosphere that is 78% nitrogen. And so just because you're burning fuel you know, in, in the Earth's atmosphere with a lot of nitrogen um, some of that nitrogen gets converted into NOx, or which is NO and NO2, and that's harmful to human health, both directly and indirectly. So those are the, be- the, th- the three big things, CO2, NOx, and contrails.
0: What I saw um, at the presentations you gave and also on the conferences in general was that um, a lot of the focus recently has been given the topic of contrails and the effects, negative effects of of contrails. Do you think it takes away some of the important focus to be put on public health as well? Like, is it a discussion that is balanced enough right now?
2: I think it's a great question and a difficult one to answer. So to give some historical context, when I um, started out in the sustainability field for aviation, um, a lot of focus was on NO2. uh, slash. a, subset of NOx, and that was really focused on public health impacts, and um, that sort of uh, media frenzy around that topic helped help to raise the visibility of public health and air pollution, and the world sort of then moved on to increasing um, increasing the understanding the importance of CO two and and mitigating CO two, and um, and now we're sort of beginning to understand uh, in terms of the public discourse the importance of contrails and mitigating contrails. So I think at some level it's um, Inevitable in terms of how public discourse moves, that there'll be a focus that changes over time. Um, so, so in that sense, it's good. But I think as the focus moves, um, it's always important to try and not forget the the previous areas of progress we've made. So, for example, air pollution still matters; it hasn't been solved. There's still a lot to do, especially in some areas like aviation, where it's hard to have emissions control like you can with um, with cars and and lorries. Um, and similarly, CO2, everyone understands that still really matters. So, I think you do have to have a spotlight for a period on a new topic uh, while trying to sustain the interest and understanding of the older areas.
0: Yeah. So one thing is uh, the discourse um, and the attention that we spend. living in an attention economy. Right. But then we are engineers. So we try to quantify it and for that we have metrics, but picking the right metric is not that obvious. So uh, they all come with um, benefits and drawbacks. Within the recent uh, European Commission Innovation Fund call um, for the first time, I believe it was stated that contrats are a problem and we are calling for solutions to mitigate the negative effects with that. And the European Commission or within those papers, they used uh, GWP 100, uh, so the global warming potential for 100 years to quantify uh, that problem. How do you feel or how do you see this choice of a, of a metric and which metrics are maybe in a better position or worse position for maybe also regulation?
2: Yeah, I mean, metrics are, are an important topic, especially when it comes to regulation. Um, I think there's a sort of slightly different perspective when you're talking about the public discourse, which sort of eventually leads to to political pressure to create, for example, this call you referred to, which ultimately came from increasing awareness of the public and politicians and, and so on. Um, and and when you view it in that way, I mean there are there are many metrics, and any scientist you stop on the street will have their own favorite pet metric and, and they'll all have various pros and cons. And we could have you know ferocious debates about the, the merits and demerits of metric A versus metric B. Um but I think what matters more is just that the metric has some way of accounting for um time horizons. So for example, if you take contrails, they are really, really quite strongly warming, but over a very short time period whereas CO2 has relatively weak warming, but over a long time period. So if you chose a metric that was sort of, in a sense, instantaneous, um, then you would weight things in to- totally towards contrails, whereas if you only cared about the very, very, very long term, then you'd weight, thi- weight things totally towards CO2. So the key thing is that you somehow account for both of those in a way that's rational and sort of tied to you know, the human experience of lifespans or something like that. Um, so provided those criteria met, then there's, there's many different metrics you can have that will give slightly different answers. But essentially, all of them tell you that CO2 matters and contrails matter. And maybe it's one-third CO2 and two-thirds contrails, or maybe it's the other way around. But either way, it doesn't doesn't really change the kinds of decisions you'd make. You still want to tackle both of them. So as long as the metrics are in that kind of realm, I think it's
0: fine. Okay, so different metrics um, have different results. But I think that most of the metrics right now indicate contrails are somewhat of a problem and hence there is a public debate on um what can we do right now so our previous guest joachim my he is basically raising the awareness about uh, contrail management and we have this tradition in the podcast that we pass on one question from previous guest to the next one so um, he asked a question that's addressed to you Stephen, and that is what do you think are the three biggest problems holding back the adoption of contrail management at scale?
2: That's a big question. So um, I think question what, uh, or number one is that, that um, we um, have a, a strong understanding of the overall impact of contrails on climate that has been developed over some 30 years. Um and that, that understanding, while it's strong in the sense of lots of research and it's been well characterized and, and heavily reviewed, um, there is uncertainty in that estimate. And that uncertainty is quite significant. You know, It's a factor of a few higher or lower than the central estimate. So I think the, the challenge there is that people misunderstand how to deal with uncertainty, which is that um, you, don't, you don't deal with uncertainty always by uh, waiting for it to be reduced. Um, sometimes you have to make decisions despite the fact that it's uncertainty. And I think this is a very strong case of that, because if you think about the last, let's say, 25 years, the uncertainty estimates in the the sort of bounds in control warming haven't changed a whole lot in 25 years. Um, And it's kind of obvious why when you think about the dynamics of scientific research, there's, you know, there's a whole load of estimates, some tens of papers, they have their different estimates. And we have uncertainty bounds based on all those studies. Now, the next marginal study that comes out, and it could be a great study, it might say, well, you know, warming is... Double what we thought it was, or it might say warming is half what we thought it was. In either case, that would be within the existing uncertainty distribution. And so it's not going to change the distribution. The alternative is that another study comes out that's you know 100 times higher or 100 times lower, but that study will not exactly be ignored, but it'll be set aside until many other studies confirm that. So, in a sense, we have this uncertainty range, um, and it's not going to change anytime soon. It'll take a long time, probably decades, for it to gradually shift over time. Um, so, basically, if if somebody comes along and says well the the science is too uncertain we have to wait longer what they're essentially saying is we have to wait you know decades 20 30 years for that to really change and i think given that we have those decades of research in the area that says that well you know maybe it's as warming as co2 maybe it's twice as warming maybe it's half maybe it's a third no matter what the answer is there it's still important and we should do something about it and we have to do that just understanding there's this uncertainty um but i think you know so i think that that sort of shift in understanding how you deal with uncertainty from oh, uh, we need to do more research to well let's do more research sure but we need to take action in the context of that research that'd be my number one thing so that's sort of um the prerequisite for uh the agreement to take action then i would say um a second topic is that um so this is number two in the in the list of answers the um the second thing i think is uh that's um while we sort of have had some very early preliminary trials in control avoidance and we've simulated it ad nauseum going back decades. People have simulated control avoidance. Um, we still don't actually have a verifiable practical way to do it in reality. So um, that sort of, in a sense, that doesn't sa- that makes it sound like it's sort of not doable, but this is one of those problems where, you know, we'll throw some tens of millions of euros or dollars or pounds or whatever into it and we'll solve it, right? It's not fundamentally that hard. But we do have to put those tens of millions of dollars, euros or pounds into it and do the research and do the technical demonstrations and verified. And many people are working on that. So my group at MIT, there's teams in, in uh, the EU and the UK and, and other places that are really uh, working on this. Uh, and we're making tremendous progress. Um, but it's not like Literally today, we could do it and say it's successful. I mean, you could you could do it and and say you did it, but uh, verifying it really worked using satellite measurements to prove it really worked, and all those sorts of things. That's not quite there yet. So, that, so there is a need um, for sort of some level of patience in the order of a few years and some tens of millions of euros or dollars of investment to 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 make that technology happen and and demonstrate it. So, um, this is not kind of quite turnkey, but it's it's a pretty quick um, win. Then the the third issue I'd say is that um, in this conversation that's beginning to happen in, in the EU in particular um, is how you sort of regulate it or, or maybe not regulate it, but create the, the market structure, the incentive structure or whatever structure it is to make control avoidance happen in practice. And I think it's important to start that discussion now because it's probably about as hard as the technical uh, discussion in, in terms of figuring out how to do it. And um, I think it's also a discussion where we're really, really not there yet. And you have seen some evidence of people kind of running ahead of of themselves, uh, leaping to solutions. And I don't think we really have a clear idea, idea of what the best approach is um, to deal with that yet.
1: Thanks for that, Stephen. Yeah, nice summary on the three key barriers to uh, large-scale implementation Don't ask me to of...
2: say what they were again, because I've forgotten them now. But...
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the first one was about uncertainties. And in light of the recent David Lee paper that came out last November, um, touching on these non-CO2 uncertainties, um, a lot of the, the basis of this paper was saying that we probably shouldn't be pushing ahead with contrail avoidance straight away. We should definitely be focusing more on CO2 for now, um, and holding back and making sure that we reduce these uncertainties to a acceptable threshold. Um, where do you stand on, on this? Uh, side of the debate as to whether we should go ahead with it within maybe the next five years or or should we hold off and really just wait to improve the science.
2: Well I, I work very closely with David Lee and he's a, a fantastic scientist who I have a huge amount of respect for and, and we, we we discuss this particular issue quite often. And um I think the um the area where um we have slightly different perspectives and this is not really a scientific judgment this is in a sense a, philosophical or political judgment is that um, uh, he would take the view um, and I'm sure he'll write to me if I mischaracterized it. that you, you shouldn't trade off any CO2 for contrails because CO2 is more certain and very long term. Um, and I think that's quite a reasonable point of view to say, you know, to have. Um, I would take the view, which is a sort of doesn't change in the science, but it, it changes in the interpretation, which is that, well, we have this evidence base for contrail warming the warming is very significant. It's comparable to CO2. And we know we could, or we think we could eliminate it for something like an extra 1% CO2. Now, the reason for that is that we would change the flying patterns of the aircraft very slightly, and we can get into that later, in a way that probably would cause something like 1% more fuel burn. And so sort of to first order, you'd be eliminating most of the contrails in exchange for something like 1% more fuel burn. Now, I think many people will say, well, Eliminating half the warming in exchange for 1% more warming in the CO2 component, that sounds like a good deal. On the other hand, if you focus more on the uncertainties, you just say, well, let's wait until we're sure. And, and, and both of those are very reasonable perspectives. It, my view, I think, is that the, the way to sort of square this circle is to say, well, um, let's move forward with control avoidance research um, and technical demonstrations. Um, and move forward on the policy discussion. Um, but frame it in the context of, well, we'll do, we'll move towards doing control avoidance, you know, rigorously and carefully with satellite verifications. Um, but we'll take the long-term view that if we get to the point where we do control avoidance, you know, let's say in, I'm not sure how many years, but it's hopefully faster than 10 years, um, maybe it's even five years. But if we get to that point, we should be doing it in the in the world of no increase in CO2. And there's many ways you could do that. One would be to, for example, um, invest more in, in uh, um, more efficient uh, flight patterns, so air traffic control or optimizing the flight. Um, you could say, well, you will do that anyway. Another way could be to say, well, we'll guarantee to offset the extra CO two with using more sustainable aviation aviation fuel that decreases the net CO two. So I think essentially, you know, environmentally everything has to get better, and the, the right answer to warming is zero. Um, so this just affects the, the the vector of how we get there, but I. I would advocate uh, moving forward with ambition and rigor in in control avoidance, um, but doing so in a way that doesn't increase CO2. Uh,
0: ambition is definitely a good keyword for us. Basically um, you mentioned that uh, it is possible to avoid those contrails maybe in the perspective without significant uh, fuel penalty. There are two. Major approaches to this: one would be to um, alter the flight plan before takeoff, and the other one is to make deviations with uh, very up-to-date data uh, right in the cockpit during flight. Could you maybe explain to our listeners um, how exactly does this work—the this so-called tactical avoidance so the latter case?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe just an overview of, of both. So, in, in the ideal world, you would, you know, download a weather forecasts, and, and you can just go to online and just download that, and and download a Contrail model and you can just go and do that. And then, you know, in a matter of days, you could you could put together something that would tell you quite how to fly your plane. And, and if, if, if life was that simple, you know, it would be fantastic. Um, unfortunately, most of us have experienced that weather forecasts are not perfect. And in particular, weather forecasts, you know, six or eight or nine hours ahead when you're doing the flight dispatch compared to the end of the flight um, are definitely not perfect. And um, they don't need to be perfect to be useful, but uh, realistically, what the, what the forecast that far out will tell you is the the likelihood of contrail formation. It's a bit like, um, you know, when you look at your phone in the morning to decide, do you take an umbrella to work? And uh, um, it'll say, you know, 30% chance of rain at 1 p.m. So you might take an umbrella in case it rains when you go for lunch. But when it comes to 1 p.m., you won't leave your umbrella in the office, mindlessly, because the, you know, 30% rounds to zero, you'll you you'll look out the window and see if the rain cloud is over you at that moment in time. And if it is, you'll take the umbrella. And if it isn't, you won't. So it's going to be similar with contrail avoidance, where we need the forecast to tell us you know, what what's the propensity of um, regions that are cold enough and humid enough for these ice clouds to form, these contrails to form. And that will inform us as to, should we put in some more fuel, fuel essentially? Should we add in 2% more fuel, for example? But then we're, when we're actually flying, you know, it could be six or more hours later when we're in a particular region that might form contrails. Um, we're not going to rely on that forecast. We'll use the best up-to-date forecasts combined, even with observations from satellites, as to where contrails are forming, and that way we can really refine where it is. So, in a sense, it's it's just sort of the analogy of how we behave anyway when it comes to rain and clouds. Right? We don't know precisely where the cloud will be in six hours, but we can we can just see it at that point, moment in time and make a decision accordingly.
0: I'm smiling. Um, you can't see it on the podcast because you've just answered like the two follow-up questions to that as well, <laughs> like almost literally. Um, very interesting to, uh, to hear that, um, especially one point um, I, I want to drill down is this um, additional fuel requirement that enables you to do deviations, uh, especially the vertical deviations during uh, flight so is this something where we have maybe quantifications on like it's a trade-off right more weight uh, means more fuel burn just to have the potential to do that uh, during flight so can we quantify this trade-off at this point
2: yeah i mean i I would say yes but with a caveat so the, um, the yes is that we've done simulations and the caveat is we've done simulations, right? So there, there needs to be <laughs> r- real-world um, experiments with with commercial aircraft, civil aircraft, uh, such such as MIT are uh, partnering with Delta doing, and doing, and there are others around the world. Um, so, the um, for example, we, we we've estimated that eighty uh, percent of control avoidance missions would need less than five percent more more fuel burn to avoid all contrails, um, and I think what that implies is that there, there might be some percentage of of uh cases where you could avoid contrails that you might just not do it because for example um they you couldn't add more fuel right the aircraft is already maxed out on the fuel load and if if that happened to be one of those cases where the percentage extra fuel was was let's say more than a uh, couple of percent and the aircraft was already maxed out then well you 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 just couldn't do contrail avoidance in all the cases because you'd need to keep your reserve which is the legal safety required minimum. Um, But having said that, the vast majority of flights or aircraft fly at something like 60% of the design range. So there's a massive margin um, in most flights. Um, So in the the majority of cases, there's a huge margin. And in almost all cases, there's a margin of at least a couple of percent, which would cover most of the avoidance maneuvers. So the the number of cases where you would be kind of fuel capacity limited would be extremely small. Um, I don't think we have quite a perfect handle on what that is yet but it's probably so small as to not being that relevant to considering you know whether we proceed with this it's really just could you eliminate you know 90 percent or 95 of, percent of the control warming that's the that's the question
1: and you mentioned the the live trials being done uh, between MIT and Delta Airlines mm-hmm. could you expand a bit on how exactly you carried out contrail avoidance with these trials and maybe how those trials were different to American Airlines and Google?
2: Um, Well, they're very similar, actually. So, uh, for example, um, we uh, worked with uh, Google and uh, and developed a lot of the underlying um, approaches together. So um, I'd say none of those trials yet are at the point where it's, um, you know, we've said we have a, a result that is kind of scientifically conclusive, um, and stands up to all the statistical analysis. all, all this stuff is all ongoing. Um, I think the the big and b- both of them were based essentially on satellite observations and the same satellite and the same algorithms and everything else. the The big difference is really between the the two American trials that have been going on that are very observationally based and the one in the upper upper Maastricht airspace, which was based on using um, forecast regions and then having uh, air traffic control reroute the aircraft around the forecasts control forming regions i think in the long term you will end up needing a hybrid of both of these in in that it's kind of hard to imagine not having air traffic control involved in large-scale avoidance and it's also hard to imagine doing this successfully and verifiably without having satellite observations because then you essentially can't really verify it and it's probably going to be less effective so in the long run all the stuff will kind of fuse together but the starting points happen to have been different
1: i think dr adam durant from satavia um, made the point that if we were to go ahead and eliminate all contrails from, from airspace, then we'd be in a situation where detecting contrails using, uh, AI and satellites that would almost be rendered obsolete in, in a sense. So what he says is that we need a combination exactly as you were saying between these two approaches to really make sure that one of them doesn't outweigh the other in, in some sense.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure it's really a case of one outweighing the other. I think it's more that um, to have good forecasts, you have to have observations. um, And the observations have to be ingested or assimilated into the forecast to nudge it, as they say, to correct it as it goes along. Otherwise, um, the the weather and climate is a chaotic system. So even if you had nearly perfect starting conditions, the simulation will diverge from reality no matter what. So you're always going to have to have observations. So there's no scenario where you could have a perfect forecasts, you know, for for all time, it, it will always be nudged by observations. Um, so I think there's, there's, it's hard to foresee a, a, a case where we wouldn't need both, essentially, then that you'd want to have a forecast as good as you can. Um, but you'd always want to be able to improve it with observations.
1: Do you think there's any scope to use uh, some of the recent AI weather modeling approaches such as Google Graphcast? So maybe integrating those into contrail prediction models?
2: I'm sure. Yeah, and we've we've done quite a lot of work on that at MIT as well. And you can definitely improve, you know, the forecast over either one alone, either the observationally pure observationally based or pure forecast based. Um, so, in, in a sense, the the um, machine learning tool set that's available now um, is so well developed that you can quite quickly do things like that, make improvements. And uh, I think over time there'll be a lot of refinement of that. The um, the challenge always is is with um, machine learning approaches is that uh, it's obviously verifying it and, and application outside of its range of applicability so you, it's still a case where those tools will be extremely helpful and will we'll refine how effective we are but you'll still want the verification observation to be sure that what you're doing is true especially given we're in a world where the climate is changing so even if it works now you know if the uh uh as the climate changes what what works in the past is going to shift in this effect affecting this over time just obviously yeah. given it's climate change
1: there lots of retraining of models, I'm guessing, based on yeah. the update and climate.
2: Continuous improvement, and I think it'll be an area of huge progress in the years ahead.
1: So at MIT, are you using these models to uh, predict contrails in terms of the microphysics, or is it more the large-scale effects that you're you're modeling? Is it the subgrid processes or the grid-scale processes?
2: Yeah, we, we, so far we've taken quite different approaches in those two scales. So at the kind of small scale... Uh, we have microphysical models that model the um, ice distribution and and things of like that and and how the ice particles settle and, and evaporate and so on. Uh, then, at a large scale, it's been much more focused on using machine learning to process real-time satellite imagery to extract where the contrails are. Um, it, it could be possible to kind of use machine learning at the very small scale, but the it's not obvious that there's as big a win to be had there because all you'd be doing is emulating a model that we can run anyway, essentially. So um, so in a sense, it's, it's sort of not, you know, we might do that, but it'd be more if there was a reason, for example, we wanted a, a rapid emulator of a model or something like that.
0: But since time is so important for this, I mean, um, we can bring down the computing resources needed, right, to make a prediction. And even if we have maybe if we emulate the microphysics schema that is used within a bigger model, uh, it might bring down the resources needed. So we could increase the frequency uh, potentially of running these uh, predictions. So so this is basically time versus accuracy, right? And if we if we can um, increase the frequency, so it's more um, Short notice? Wouldn't that bring a benefit? I think that's true. and and I think um if we're at the situation where you know
2: simulating individual individual contrails in great detail um, really makes sense operationally, then that would be one way to create a sort of reduced order or surrogate model would be to train it using the machine learning tool set. There are also many other tools sets that have been developed over you know decades that surrogate modeling reducer modeling is a kind of it's a big field and there's there's many approaches you could take that have different pros and cons and the kind of the machine learning tool set is is one one approach and um you know you can sort of mathematically prove in a sense that uh, a deep neural net is is essentially a curve fit that could basically fit anything so it can be very effective at kind of uh, reproducing complex models but it doesn't mean it's always the best way to to do that um, but um I think the, the the other aspect of this I'd say is that um, it's it's not clear that simulating individual contrails in massive detail really makes sense right now. Um it does from, from the perspective of saying, well, we can simulate the scenarios um and say how much benefit we can get in terms of reducing control warming or kind of have some statistics on how much warming will be reduced and you know how many contrails might be might be warming versus cooling, which could happen. But for any individual contrail in the real world, um the simulation of the Contrail is so dependent on on how humid the air is, uh, what's called supersaturation, and we have such massive uncertainties in that supersaturation that kind of a detailed simulation doesn't really make that much sense in the context of those huge uncertainties. So probably it'll be some time until it's kind of um, is really that uh, meaningful to tie in these very detailed simulations just because we have such a, a rough understanding of humidity in the atmosphere right now.
0: Okay, let's assume for a second that um we we have iagos, right? Um so we have some kind of in situ data including humidity sensors uh, that provide us with a ground truth, let's say, to test our models against. Let's assume for a second that maybe more aircraft were equipped with uh, sensors. All,
2: that... all all aircraft.
0: Yeah, all. That.
2: <laughs> I mean everything I said is wrong right? I mean I mean I think that that would be the ideal right is to have all aircraft having humidity sensors. And then you could, in real time, simulate pretty accurately uh, what the Contrail warming would be. Uh, and you'd have an incredibly dense network to constantly update weather models and everything else. Um, so I think you know, in that world, it, it, things have changed. Um, and that world could come to pass because you have investments being made in multiple countries in developing cheap, low-cost sensors that could do this. Like in, in the um, in the US, uh, arpa which is the uh, Advanced Research Project Agency for Energy, is now investing in in this exact topic. Um, and uh, ARIA in the UK, which is the, the sort of a n- newer agency in the UK, is is considering that. I'm not sure how if they if they're going to go ahead with that. But uh, um, you know, th- this really could happen. Uh, and so for that reason, it really does make sense to continue advancing the small scale models because as well as kind of scientific interest they really could have real world application in the years ahead you obviously have to do these things in parallel otherwise you know, you'd know you be waiting around for years once one thing's ready
0: is there anything in, in arpa-e that you're particularly curious about any topic that was mentioned um, or direction they are going that maybe could be a disruption
2: well, I mean, this sound it probably is a bit absurd, doesn't it doesn't just sound absurd, but I often like to think about long-term research as how would it be in Star Trek or something like that? And in my mind, the kind of uh, having a probe kind of sticking out the side of an aircraft uh, to measure humidity with all the vagaries, and that's fine, right? Uh, um, but I mean, how would it be in Star Trek as having some beam that shoots ahead that kind of detects what the humidity will be in the distance ahead and, and uh, avoids control forming regions before you get there? Um, so if if that turns out to be possible, um, then I think that would be great. And it's you know maybe maybe lidar viewing small ice crystals or something like that could be a way to do that. So it's not necessarily physically impossible, but actually developing the real world technology and demonstrating it uh, in a package that could go on an aircraft—that's that's some undertaking that will cost some you know some millions of dollars or euros to do.
1: So this is all related to the topic of predicting ISSRs. Of course, having onboard sensors is a Potentially a very good way to improve the accuracy of predictions. What other areas do you see advancing forward that we can really put some time and money into to improve these ISSR predictions?
2: I think the measurement is the big one, uh, both in situ and um, and space based, so satellite based measurements. Um, I think once those those become more widely available, um, it would just be a case of uh, the the organizations that are the kind of keepers of the world's best weather models, like uh, the ECMWF and, and NOAA and others, um, in fact, prioritizing in their um, engineering roadmaps, getting more accurate high altitude humidity, which, which so far sort of isn't, hasn't really been a priority because it doesn't really matter for the existing applications. So it's, it's, um, I don't think they will need to be imagined one to make massive progress. it will just need to be a priority for those organizations to, um, develop their weather models with that as as an objective.
0: I'd like to ask a question about a topic that um, was recently discussed more, and that is the big hitters. So flights that cause the majority of the warming caused by contrails. And um, I want to challenge this maybe a little bit because... I understand that uh, from a scientific point of view, there are such flights which you know create massive contrails that persist for long time um, with a great um, effective radiated forcing. But in order to then implement this or put this into maybe even regulation, I find it very tricky because it's like at the other end of the spectrum where you need to nail everything. You need to uh, basically understand perfectly what each flight. Uh, causes in terms of uh, you know the, the the contrail warming. So is this um, a helpful debate to to look into the big hitters?
2: I, th- I think it's a helpful debate
0: to help us collectively
2: arrive at a sensible policy outcome, which I don't think we're quite there yet. So, in a sense, the kind of um, rational but naive approach would be to say, well, we should measure the warming of every flight precisely, and then um, kind of charge people according to how much warming that flight cost right um but then you know just think about it from a sort of uh even a family perspective let's say you know um you're a, a family living in london you know paying huge rents and struggling for money and you've saved up to go on holiday to spain and you paid your 100 euros a person for the the ticket 100 pounds if you're going from london to go to spain um and then you suddenly find out that your warming the warming from your flight was 20 times higher um, than the average, which could easily be easily be the case, just because of bad luck, and suddenly you get a bill for a couple hundred more pounds, right? For uh, for the warming, I mean, clearly that's not a, a fair or rational thing to do, to kind of charge in, charge individual consumers and families uh, for things they have no control over. Given you don't know what the weather will be like at the point you're booking, right? So clearly there has to be some aggregation there, maybe at the airline level or at the route level or or whatever it is. The, the second piece of that is that. You can't even, well, we can sort of run models and say, well, there are the big hitters and there are the less control-forming flights. Um, and we can come up with numbers and, you know, print out an Excel spreadsheet or whatever of of of, of ranking them. Um, what that really tells us is, is that there is variability in the real world. But because real world weather is quite uncertain and we don't really have the, the measurements of high altitude to know what really happened, um, it, it, the, the correlation between that exact rank ordering and reality is probably pretty limited, right? It, it will tell us the kind of statistics of how these things vary and the averages will be quite good, but the actual specific rank order, you know, may or may not have much validity to do it. And we just we just don't know at this point. So that again tells us that, um, you know, we, we have the knowledge to do things that apply on average and to have policies that apply on average, um, but charging things sort of at a very detailed level isn't supported either by the science. And, and if it was, you'd still want to do that in a way that doesn't penalise kind of individual people for making decisions um, that then they get charged for where they had, you know, be like penalising somebody for not forecasting the weather, right? That doesn't make sense. So so I think we have to think really carefully about the, the policy frameworks that deal with the scientific uncertainties as well as individual equity in a, in a sensible way.
1: So integrating non-CO2 effects into Google Flights, say, as, a, as an example you think that this is potentially yeah, still quite a few years off, right?
2: I think there's ways to do it that that are um, useful. So, for example, if you say on average, flights cause twice as much warming as the CO2 and give the CO2 number, there's a lot of scientific basis for that. Um, You might start trying to advance beyond that and go by kind of time of day or or region or something like that. Um, But it wouldn't make sense to go to sort of uh, the precise flights on a Tuesday morning at nine AM, because the the science really isn't there yet, and that's not even necessarily helpful as a policy solution, anyway.
0: It's it's all about uh, certainties here. Um, and one question that I need to ask you, as we are wrapping up uh, this episode, we are going to finish on a positive note, but I uh, I'd like to have your take on on a on a critical question, and that is, I I heard some experts say. Well, there is this concept of a false positive, meaning that you predict an ISSR to be there and it's actually not there, but then you divert the flight and you actually divert it into an ISSR. So this like double negative effect. Is there a way we can quantify the chances of this to happen? Is it a valid argument?
2: It's it's definitely a valid argument. I mean, that can happen and does happen in, in the sort of pretrials that happened. Um, I think the The way to tackle that is just with, um, you know, as well as the ambition to move quickly, the the rigor to evaluate it uh, robustly. And uh, and that means either satellite measurements or some other real measurements to see what's really happening. And you won't have a 0% false positive rate, but you want to figure out what is an acceptable rate there. Um, And uh, in some sense, there'll be a trade off between false positives and avoiding contrails. So you'll, you know, figure out what the optimum is considering all the factors. But that's a very very doable problem, and in in some ways, a lot of this stuff has um, analogs in other areas like air pollution. So if you think about um, NOx emitted from cars, right, we we heavily regulate NOx emissions from cars so that they've come down. In the case of diesel vehicles, by some you know 95, 99%. Um, but if you think about what NOx actually does, well, historically a big concern was ozone, and NOx emissions sometimes increase ozone and sometimes decrease ozone. Um, but we didn't try and sort of uh, you know Ask drivers to turn up the emissions control system or down on on account of an individual route they might be driving. We instead say, well, on average, we know that regulating NOx emissions of cars is great for public health. And it could be the case that some percentage of those times when the emissions control systems in use, we're causing a bit more CO2, which does happen in reality for cars too, um, in order to eliminate the NOx emissions. But we're certain that on average that makes sense for society. And similarly here, over time, we'll figure out um, that there's a trade-off where we have high confidence that you know this trade-off makes sense on average and it won't be perfect in every precise case but just like with uh environmental controls in in um, air pollution we're pretty confident it's an air plus for society
0: you managed to turn it around into a positive aspect i like that and that's a good note to finish on as we have this tradition um our next guest is the dr alejandro Block from Ayata. And um, I met him in Madrid uh, last year uh, as he was moderating the panel discussion with Florian Alrogen from MIT as well. It was very interesting. And uh, so this is your chance to direct a question to Ayata to Alejandro.
2: Well, Alejandro is a, a great contributor to this, this whole uh, debate as well. And um, I'll give him a hard question then. So it's, um, does he see prospects for a global solution to contrails and contrail avoidance? Uh, and or uh, coordinated regional approaches.